Welcome to the Ambitious Introvert Podcast, created especially for introverts, empaths, and highly sensitive entrepreneurs to help you build, grow, and scale a successful, sustainable business. I'm your host, Emma Louise Parks, business and mindset coach for ambitious introverts. After 17 years working as an air traffic controller, the ultimate fast-paced, high-stimulus, extrovert-friendly role My mission now is to show introverts that they too can create big results and success because of who they are, not in spite of it. I focus on introvert-friendly business and marketing strategy to help you switch overwhelm for clarity, confidence, and clients. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of the Ambitious Introvert Podcast, which is a special episode and a little bit different from what you've listened to previously for two reasons. The first is it's a little bit longer than usual. I do usually try to keep things bite-sized. However, there's a lot more educational content in today's episode, which is another reason that it is slightly different. So I'm talking today to Dr. Katie T. Larson, and she's an expert in high sensitivity or sensory processing sensitivity, as it's also known. I invited Dr. Katie on because not only am I a highly sensitive person, but I know many people don't understand the phenomena. They don't really understand what it's about. And it's something that I only discovered in the last few years. So I really wanted to bring someone to you that you can listen to from a scientific point of view, but also because she's lived this herself. And our conversation is quite interesting because we have so many of the same experiences, even though we live quite a different lifestyle. So if you're thinking, this isn't for me, I'm not sensitive, you know, I'm not interested in that, I'm here for the introvert stuff, I would encourage you to listen or at least give it a go because the word sensitive is misused in society so often and what we're talking about here is an actual physical trait which often people don't even realise they have. So listen along, you may identify with something we talk about or as also happens, you may understand that someone close to you is actually a highly sensitive person just from listening to what we discuss. Now, if you're interested further, everything will be in the show notes. Dr. Katie's a great person to contact. You can also contact me to ask about my highly sensitive experience. And if you want to find out whether you think you fit into that category, then do check out the website by Dr. Elaine Aron, which is hsperson.com. And I'll drop that in the show notes too enjoy the episode. So before you discovered what this was, what did you think sensitive meant? Mm, I'm glad that's the first question because that's really front of mind for me this week because I am not one of these people who thinks it's a negative trait. I must have had parents that really valued sensitivity because I may have been told a few times like you're too sensitive or stop being so sensitive, but I wasn't bullied about it. But I do know a lot of my friends have awful stories about their parents telling them to toughen up or teachers telling them, you're taking this too sensitive, you need to grow up and, and, and get a thicker skin and a backbone. So I, I see the connotation for sensitive to be you're attuned, you know, like you, you, you are aware of your feelings you're aware of the environment, you're aware of the way things make you feel, you know, your reactions. So I I think sensitivity is neutral, neutral or, you know, not as negative as other people may think. It's so interesting because physically, when I think 
of, or when I thought, I'm going to say pre-understanding HSP, when I thought of physical sensitivity, I thought like someone's ticklish or right. they feel, you know, hot or cold very, very strongly. But when I thought of emotional sensitivity, I thought that's quite negative. I thought, you know, you're yeah. overly emotional. You, you cry a lot. You get worked up about things, which I'm not like that. So I didn't identify as sensitive, but certainly mm-hmm. the physical aspects of it. And then, of course, once I understood what HSP was and that I was very high on the HSP scale Mm -hmm. I was like oh it's not just about crying and getting upset about things yes I do think that somatic response is something that not many people would identify as being sensitive because that's not necessarily what you would be insulted by is it when you say oh you're so sensitive it's usually the emotional the emotional insult Um, but I do feel I come from a science background And so I recognize sensitivity in non-humans as well. And so like you can recognize animals as sensitive, right? Where they're, they're more afraid or cautious, right? Like I used to work at an animal hospital and I would consider probably a lot of the, the shyer animals or the more cautious animals, like they're the sensitive animals, right? So I see it in a lot, maybe like a broader range of a definition than the average person. I think my cat is HSP. I think my dog is. <laughs> so I didn't yeah. know that this could yeah. be a thing for animals until I watched the sensitive documentary, which I'll link in the show notes. Yeah. I only watched it recently. And when it said about 20% of animals, I thought about Mimi because she's always been a bit of an odd cat. She's very cautious, but very clever. And mm-hmm. she will, she'll take a fuss. And I know all cats can be a bit like, okay, that's enough. Now I'm going. But she takes this fuss and she's almost in a trance. Like she's purring (laughs) so loud and she gets so into it. But when she's had enough, she has had enough. And I think it's almost Um, like that narrow band of tolerance. Yes. Yes. My dog is the same. And my dog has the empathic quality. So she's a therapy dog, which is, is amazing. She was actually um, a rescue dog that was found in a 300 square foot apartment with 135 other animals. And it was a breeding operation. Mm. And then when they rescued her, you know, she had to learn how to become a dog, but she learned so well and she was so loving and kind. It was as if she was um, built to be a therapy dog. And she worked with disabled adults and blind kids and she goes into schools and she's just the perfect um, companion for other kids and other beings that need that like calming um, attitude you know yeah it's funny animals have this as well (laughs) I I love it I loved that in the documentary so how did you find out about sensitivity and how did you realize that this was you right so I was as a highly sensitive person, I'm very curious and I'm always in, I always have my hand in like seven pots of curiosity and I go deeper in one and deeper in the other. But what I've always consistently been curious about my whole life is just transformation in general. And that's what my PhD is in. And I am always interested in what people do to get into a transformation in their life or what is the stages of transformation and and development that they, um, what are common ones, what are uncommon ones, what are mystical ones, this kind of thing. And I had been studying for a coaching certification for spiritual emergence. 
And so this is like the people who are having an awakening, almost like a spiritual awakening. It feels very mystical, magical. You feel all of a sudden very connected to things. And I myself have had a variety of these at different points in my life. And so I wanted to understand it from a different perspective so I could help my clients. And in one of the modules of the certification, it talked about how highly sensitive people are more likely to have spiritual emergence um, experiences. And I could have just glossed over that term, but instead I was like, I got to know what that means. Like, what's a highly sensitive person? And click on it, and it leads you to Dr. Elaine Aaron's website, who's the premier researcher of this, and has several books, including the most popular, The Highly Sensitive Person. And she has a quiz. And once I took her quiz, like you, I'm like the top of the top. I think I only missed one. And it was like, were you shy as a kid? I'm like, eh, not really. So it was nearly every single tick. and I suddenly started reading the descriptions of what a highly sensitive person was. And I said, oh my gosh, all my life, I thought those were disconnected traits. How are all of these things connected? And once you realize that, God bless Dr. Elaine Aaron for doing the original research, it's just a cluster of traits that seems to be fairly consistent, right? It's one in five of us are highly sensitive. So it's 20% of the population. And I started, um, experiencing a rapid shift of, oh my gosh, this makes perfect sense. Like finally, this makes perfect sense. And I went back and like reframed everything from the perspective of being highly sensitive and it made my whole life make much more sense. And I feel you completely because I picked up Dr. Aaron's book randomly in a bookshop and the highly sensitive person, I actually had a friend of mine and a client of mine in mind when I saw it, who were, as I said, I thought of before, quite emotional. I thought, oh, this could be useful. Mm -hmm. And like you, always interested in learning more about anything. So pick the book up, put it, you know, put it away, didn't think about it for a few months, then got around to starting it. And within the introduction, I realized, oh, this sensitivity isn't what I think. This sounds interesting. And it started to talk about flickering lights and background music and temperature. And I was like, hmm, I better just take this quiz. <laughs> I think it's out of 28. And if you score yeah. above 14, you're most likely like highly sensitive. And I was 23. So it's like, okay. Yeah. okay. So then devoured the rest of the book and did what exactly what you did, looked back and went, this, everything makes sense now. Yes. And it's quite empowering, actually, when you figure that out of like, oh, my goodness, all those other times, I was ashamed of that quality because it made me feel different. It put me at a disadvantage or it made me stand out in a crowd and it makes you feel quite lonely and vulnerable. But when I read the description and just to know that there was a reason that I was feeling those ways... And that it was like, I couldn't have done much about it because it was quite natural for my tendencies as a highly sensitive person. It really alleviated a lot of the shame that I had for a couple of stories in my life. So how did it change things going forwards for you once you understood? I started making sure. So um, one thing that your listeners who, who don't know much about high sensitivity should know is our nervous system is more finely attuned and it's more perceptive and it's more reactive. And so as a result, you have, that's again, that's the neutral trait, but you have the pros and cons of that. So the pro is that you're going to experience life in a way that is 
technicolor as opposed to somebody in the other 80% of the population who is less sensitive. It's just black and white, you know, maybe a few shades of gray, but highly sensitive. It's technicolor. It's like um, almost having, remember when there used to only be like five channels on TV and then all of a sudden it was cable TV and it was like a hundred. It's like, we have the hundred channels, right? And so that's amazing. You have so many things that you're going to be able to experience as a result of having this heightened nervous system. But then the con is that you're going to get startled easily. You're going to get overstimulated, over aroused. And so I think for me, once I started recognizing that a lot of my challenges of being highly sensitive are around my senses, my actual somatic senses, like I can't handle when it smells, like certain smells, or like you said, the flickering light, like if you go to a bus stop and there's like fluorescent light and Mm -hmm. it's just like flickering and you're like, how has no one changed this light yet? (laughs) This has been here for six years, you know, (laughs) what I have done now instead is take a lot of pleasure in my five senses. So we live by a river and I make sure every single day to walk to the river and sit and listen to it because it gives me an orgasm. Like it feels amazing to hear this river. It is the antithesis of a jackhammer, which gives me like just absolute uh, frazzles my nervous system, but the river calms it down. I'll make sure to savor good tastes. I will buy fabrics I love certain fabrics for the way they feel. And I'm more indulgent in these things now that I know that it is so vital for my nervous system to have a balance of things that I enjoy because I'm not always going to be able to turn down its attunement to the environment. So make sure that the things that I can control in my home and in my um, what I wear and what I consume those I will now choose things that will be more pleasurable for me. And I think that's a really important point is how the environment affects you. So be that your home or a restaurant, a coffee shop, you know, wherever, whichever city you live. And that's something that I was able to connect the dots back looking through because I'd always been very drawn to certain places. I'd always been very drawn to the Scandinavian countries, um, very drawn to Japan And interestingly, um, for you, who's in Hong Kong, a good friend of mine lived in Hong Kong for a number of years. So I'd been a few times. And then I combined it with another trip around Asia where I arrived in Hong Kong after Singapore. So vastly different. Very different. I'd spent four or five days in Singapore just going, oh, this is this is lovely. Not appreciating why I thought it was so lovely. They keep it so clean, right? You're like, how do they keep this so clean? So clean. It was so calm. It was so understated and so quiet. And then I flew into Hong Kong and got the train to his apartment. I walked out like in central, literally in the middle of central and went, Oh my God. Like just, yeah. I was frazzled in seconds. Yes. Yeah. It was just the noise and the hustle and the bustle and the energy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize at the time how much that affected me. Agreed. And I find it really interesting because I'm one of these, um, similar to you, we're world travelers. And there are certain places that I just absolutely fall in love with. And it's in an energetic capacity. And Barcelona was one of these places for me where I could just get lost and I would feel so calm and collected. Even if I had three espressos or cafe con leches, like even if I was totally caffeinated, I could very easily just wander and not feel too stressed. In Hong Kong, 
I have never wanted to get lost. The second I get lost, I get overwhelmed. I am bombarded by flashing foot massage lights. I, there will be a jackhammer. Someone, I should buy stock and jackhammers because they're just <laughs> endless in Hong Kong. <laughs> they're everywhere. And these are the things that before I knew I was highly sensitive, I would return home from just a simple outing that would be maybe two to three hours out in the city. And I would be exhausted. I would be absolutely need to lay down and not speak or not look at a phone or, or a screen and just need rest after just simply living a normal life in the city. But that is because it is a multi, multi-sensory bombardment. And when you are um, as perceptive and attuned to your environment as a highly sensitive person is, it can be like you're constantly running background programs you know, uh, as a computer. And it's just like, you've got like 7,000 tabs open. I love and that. I love when, the tab analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows it. When you come home, you need to close the tabs. You just got to close them all down. And, and resting versus sleeping, I think it's really important to make the difference here of, it is very important for a highly sensitive person to rest. It's obviously important to sleep, but resting is more like, no screens, no noise, no stimulus. So literally sitting in a dark room quietly, or maybe you have soft music, or maybe you have a a really calm television show, but something that will be as little stimulating as possible to to restart, reboot your computer, you know, like recharge. And I noticed that if I'm going to do something that I find relaxing, pleasurable to kind of reset, I want to do that and nothing else. I'll sit and read my book in a comfortable room that's got nice lighting, but I don't want music on. Or if I'm going to listen to music or a podcast, I'm not looking at anything. I've, I've got to really pick one or the other, or I start to just feel frazzled. That makes sense, actually. I'm that way too. And I have to be with music. I know something we've talked about before is having this like narrow band of, of tolerance. And for me, it's both for the volume and also for the amount of time that I listen to it. So, you know, if the volume's on nine, it's too low and 11, it's too high. And both of those really, really bother me. And I can also listen to the same song over and over on repeat. Songs that me I too. really love. Yeah, obsessively. Oh, I, yeah. yeah, obsessively. But then I get to the point that I'm like, that's enough now. And do you find when you've had enough of something, you, you've had enough? Like it's really... Yeah, I'll never look at it again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what, what's funny as well, though, is I can get quite nostalgic when I hear it again. I have a great story. I'll, I'll try to make it short because it can be long. But I was stuck in a chapter in my PhD. I was listening to the Grateful Dead song, Ripple, on repeat for, I am not exaggerating, six weeks. So six weeks for about five to six hours a day, I listened to Ripple over and over and over again. And then one day I was like, I can't handle it, no more. Like done, right? I can't handle it. But the reason I liked it so much was there was a lyric that's like, this this path is for your, your steps alone. And when I graduated, I went to the pub and I opened the door and the song Ripple was playing. And the lyric that was on was, this path is for your steps alone. And I got these goosebumps that was like the universe winking, like, see what I did there? See what I did there? And <laughs> you I can't was so it. nostalgic. <laughs> yeah. But I was so nostalgic to like, wow, what a callback to that moment of my life where I was stuck. And this song got me out of it. And this song found me again. And I don't think it was a coincidence, but it was such a cool, deep, meaningful moment 
that again probably feels more strongly because I am a sensitive person and these things you know they are meaningful and I noticed that the song was playing like I think everyone else in the in the door they opened the door like can I get a beer nobody was listening to the music not only did I hear the music but I heard the exact lyric and that is again part of our perception our perception is like never off so something with walking into like a pub or a party or something like that, like you say, is, um, I mean, I'm fairly introverted, but I'm still sociable, but it can be really overwhelming. And I never understood why. And it's obviously that nervous system is taking in everything. It scans the whole room. Is this a threat? Yeah. What's the lighting like? Where are the exits? What's this, uh, as an empath as well, what are these people's energy like? Who do I know? Blah, yeah. blah, blah. And one of the things that has always made me laugh, I've got pretty much a photographic memory pretty much except if I meet a new person and they tell me their name and it's like I'm concentrating so hard to try and get their name that I miss it and I've gone through this for years it's the most ridiculous thing and then someone else will say who's that and I go I don't know I can't remember his name yeah but I can tell you they were wearing a red shirt they were over by the plant they had Pepsi instead of Coca-Cola and they had a haircut from the last time I saw them right but you don't know their name (laughs) yeah Yeah, I know their wife's name how many children they've got where their dog came from everything but I could not remember the name and I think I it's that over arousal but then I put so much pressure on myself when I realized that this happened to try and remember that it just made it even worse. Even worse. Yeah. Because now it's too much pressure. Yeah. And that is, again, that's a highly sensitive trait is we don't enjoy having so much pressure to perform. We get performance anxiety. We can do anything wonderfully when it is not observed and when we can be free in our movements and our, and our abilities. But that moment that things are pressured, we lose it. Yeah. Yeah, it was very much like that when I was an air traffic controller because it was three years of training and, you know, 90% wow. of what you did, there, there was someone watching you and, and giving you tips and things, but it wasn't assessed as such. And then you'd have one day where you did what you'd been doing, you know, day in, day out, but someone would be assessing you and I would feel like, oh, luckily I actually performed okay under those, but I know people that didn't and they had, they had yeah. the skills and capability, but just because someone was watching, it's like everything crumbled. So I want to actually ask you something about the air traffic controlling is, was that, was your trait a hindrance or a help when you were doing that specific job? It was both. It was definitely both. So it was a help because I often had almost like a sixth sense. It could be in the tone of a pilot's voice that they were going to query something or something wasn't quite right or even just the way they were saying something that I thought they they haven't quite understood what I've said and I need to go back and and reiterate this or on their first contact with me um you know if it was a pilot whose English might have been their you know third or even fourth language um I would get that okay I need to slow down now I need to make sure I'm I'm Mm -hmm. understood and I always was definitely more of a proactive controller I'm going to say like I would plan way ahead of I would know what was going to call me I would know what I was going to do than a reactive controller which there's nothing wrong with either but some people just you know are better to react they're given a situation they sort it out I was much more looking ahead looking at all the eventualities all the possibilities But where it was a real hindrance and this is what I, I mean I didn't discover I was HSP until about probably 15 years into the career 
was I worked in a radar center with artificial light, with no windows, oh. with um, a radar, which was a black screen with green returns on that moved constantly i had um let me think one two three four five six to seven depending where i was sat screens all around me displaying different information in different colors in different fonts some of it updated every three seconds it it would flash there were alarms going off there were phones ringing you know so as an environment it was incredibly stimulating which probably not in a good way for me yeah And did you have to do something after work to calm down? So I would, sometimes I would just come and watch mindless TV. I'm not much of a TV person, but that thing of, because when I read, I tend to read stuff that requires attention. I don't tend to read fiction. Yeah, as well. Yeah, so like I don't want to come and and read some quite, you know, in-depth psychology book or something after controlling, but so that's where I would, you know, box set, binge watch kind of thing. But yeah. I couldn't go straight to sleep after an afternoon shift, even though I was super, t- it was that tired, but wired, like physically, I was really tired, yes. but my brain was still, was still going. And what I used to find was the shift work as well was difficult. It was like have a jet lag all the time. Uh, we'd switch from earlies to late to nights or back to earlies again. It was all over the place. And on my three days off, one of them usually just good for nothing like we'd barely get out of bed yeah or your body was like thank you just let, let's do this yeah. now yeah don't let's make me do much nothing. else please yeah yeah and funnily enough about about six weeks ago I had a day like that and that's the first time in in a year really since I was in the job that I'd had it and it's because I'd been doing so much online I think I'd, I'd been doing yeah. some website stuff and writing a lot of email things and I'd, I'd spent three days like with my head in the laptop and I, my body just went no no screens today yeah and thank god that our bodies are able to be honest with us about what we need and understanding that signal because how many people just push through well, that's the culture that tends to give that message, doesn't it? Of you don't need to honor your natural tendencies of what your body is telling you need, push through it and be productive, right? And sometimes I think one of the best attributes of um, embracing your sensitivity is learning to reparent yourself because a lot of us had parents that were that message as well. Um, I know a couple of uh, my clients and and my partner's parent would say if he was found sitting on the couch and not doing anything for the day, they would say, you're useless. What have you done all day? Right. And so that is like ingrained that becomes your inner voice and that becomes ingrained that I am nothing if I'm not producing And we're not meant to produce 24-7. We're meant to indulge in in, uh, relaxing and pleasurable activities as well. And sometimes just permitting ourselves to do this is a really important um, part of this. I think for me, I learned early on in parenthood, I needed to give myself a night in a hotel And it was when my daughter was three months old, it was my birthday. And my husband says, what do you want for your birthday? I said, a night in a hotel away from everyone. And he's like, okay, you deserve it. And it was the first night that I had been by myself for, you know, months. And it was the most rejuvenating break. And I said, when I return home, I will do this every three months because it was that 
helpful for me. And I've pretty much maintained it for the last two and a half years. And I can feel right around two and a half months, you know, right when three months is coming up, like an urgency to take that break and to give myself that self-care because it has now become a routine and my body craves it. And a client of mine that I work with, actually, she uh, she didn't know that she was an introvert until we began working together and she took the Myers-Briggs on the induction and she was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense now because during lockdown, she was really struggling with you know being around family. 24 7 where she'd usually have this time on her own and then you know it's a slightly different note but something that interesting that came out of that she said i actually thought maybe i had mental health issues or was bipolar because i would struggle being around people and she felt almost this relief of of knowing that she was introverted and she now doesn't feel guilty about wanting that same thing she said i think i need to take myself off i think i need just a night away i don't really want to do anything i'm just gonna you know maybe sit and watch movies yeah. and read a book and go and take myself out for a meal on my own but she said i think i need that time and space away and i think especially you know i don't have children but if you're married and you've got kids there can be this pressure of well no you should want to be here taking care of us all, yeah. all the time <laughs> I think that you hit the nail on the head that a lot of us discovered many things about ourselves this lockdown and this year in general about what we need and why we need it and how important, like for extroverts, how important it was to get out of the house and go to the office and speak to people. And then when you're home every day and you're now just starving for any kind of, um, interaction and then for introverts who liked going to the office because they had space away from their family and then now they're put in their family or some introverts are thriving because they're finally allowed to work by themselves at their own pace in their own way and that has been something that they realize that they don't want it to return the other way and so now creating these practices in our lives that give us what we need as a result of things shifting so mm -hmm. much now we realize, oh, actually, I needed X, Y, Z. So let me put that in my life. Something that I found with introversion as well, and I think it probably rings true with HSP, is that people tend to not notice it as much when they're younger. It's as they get older yeah. and maybe a bit more introspective or, you know, they take a test and go, oh, this makes sense. Because I think certainly as like a teenager, you're expected to go out and go to nightclubs mm. and be in a crowd of people and all of this. So I think if you asked most teenagers, do they like doing that? They would say, yeah, because it's all they know. It's that societal expectation. Yeah. And then as you get older, you go, oh, I don't want to do that. And then people often look back and say, actually, I didn't really enjoy it. It used to make me really, really tired. Yeah. Um, but I think it's probably the same with HSP. Like you say, people are going, oh, stop being so sensitive. Stop being shy. Stop being picky. Like all of these things that you're told about. Yeah. And then you look back and you go, well, no, that's just who I am. And I find that, especially in my uni years, I was having quote unquote fun because that's what you were meant to do. So in, in the U.S., it's very popular to go to American football games. Every Saturday in the university, we have like from 70 to 100,000 people in a stadium. And we're all drunk. I mean, 100%. But it's like that doing that over and over and over again, it was fun to me because I was with my friends. I'm an extroverted. 30% of HSPs are extroverted. And I'm one of the extroverts. But 
I would be in this circumstance and then all of a sudden be, I would hit a wall and I had reached my over arousal because it was too stimulating, too loud, too much going on. Um, like just everything, right? <laughs> Drinking. And I did this for four years. And it's like every Saturday morning, I would wake up and say, oh, I don't really want to do this. But I would force myself to do it because that's what you do. And I think um, I made a joke with my husband a couple of years ago. And I'm like, God, I'm so glad I don't have to pretend to enjoy that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You're my first extrovert. Uh, good. Well, hello, everyone. A few, a few special extroverts have been scheduled to guests, so you are the first. So thank you for that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm here I to feel give the extroverted perspective. Absolutely, <laughs> the extroverted, sensitive perspective. But I, and I, I have, I actually have a story about that in a moment. But go on. I feel you with the like going out thing because I, I would go to clubs and I really enjoyed dancing. You know, I danced a lot when I was younger, and I, I would love being out. I would go to clubs with friends, and when I'd had enough, oh my God, I'd had it like, you know, yeah, I, like I wasn't you just reached the wall, you hit the wall. I hit right? the wall. Yeah. yeah. And, and they started to realize because I would be like, I'm going home and people would be like, oh, well, let's just finish this drink and blah, blah. And yeah. I'd be like, I'm going like you, you can say, yeah. because once I'd hit that wall, I needed to be home like five minutes ago. It was already, right. oh, by the time I'd realized it was already too late and I could not cope. And back then, you know, you could still smoke in clubs as well. So mm, suddenly everything would be, yeah, the, you know, lab music, smoky smells, alcohol, and I'd just be like, get me out of here, like, right away. And up until yes. that point, they'd been having a great time. I 100% resonate with that. And when my friend taught me about ghosting people at parties, she's like, oh, I just leave. I don't tell, I don't say goodbye. I'm like, you can do that? She's like, okay, just leave. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I began, any party I was at, when I hit overstim, I would just leave. And then they would have jokes about me of, oh, Katie, what time are you going to leave tonight? I'm like, you'll never know. I'm just going to go. But I have to say, as the uh, token extrovert on your show, my question to you is, do you find you have close relationships with one extrovert? Because as an extrovert, a lot of my friends are introverts because I'm extroverted, highly sensitive. So I appreciate introversion energy. And I like to have a really nice, intimate relationship. And I find intimate relationships are better with one-on-one. -on -one, and usually those are my introverted friends. And while I enjoy my eccentric extroverted friends, because all of them are very eccentric, I tend to be very attracted to eccentric people. All of a sudden, just like our overstim with environment, I will get overstim with people where their eccentricities all of a sudden just hit me like, okay, I'm done. I'm exhausted. I can't hear any more about your musical theater uh, productions. I got to leave, you know, but up until that point, I was very attracted to their stimulation because it's like arousing to me and I'm so attracted to arousal. But then as we've been saying several times, there's a very narrow um, peak arousal for highly sensitives and so then we just go into overstem and i'm that way with people so i tend to uh, be more attracted to introverts my husband is an introvert uh, my best friends are introverts so my business bestie amy brown is a huge extrovert 
and we always joke and say we're like yin and yang to each other because yeah. it it balances out and we're able to give each other that perspective um but you know she's like halfway up the country we don't see a great deal of each other we voice note text every day and that's really great what i found for my other close relationships is they tend to be better with introverts because of the kind of socializing i like to do or liked to do when we were allowed out so um, I would, you know, meet up with a friend for the day in London and I, I prefer socializing one-on-one, like maybe up Same. to a group of four, but but usually one-on-one. And it would be indulgent things like you were saying, we'll go for like an indulgent afternoon tea or something that's really sensory. And I will sit with good friends that I maybe don't see that often and we will sit and talk for eight or nine hours about yeah. whatever and we don't need anything else. Whereas with my extroverted friends, it would be more like, okay, on to the next place. Like, where should we go now? And what should we do? And should we invite other people? And while that's great in small doses, I feel like the most nourishing way of spending time with people for me is that deep one-on-one. So so definitely a balance, but I really appreciate the extrovert energy in yeah. um, in my business, definitely. Yeah. And we are, we are good complements to one another as extroverts and introverts. And there's a reason that we're split in the population because we often need each other, don't we? I'm the more spontaneous, we should go here person in the relationship. And my husband's the more pensive, thoughtful, and we balance each other out. And it's appreciated having both of us. And I love that in Dr. Aaron's book, if anyone reads it, and I really recommend you do, if you even think okay. that you may be highly sensitive or any of your family or children might be, it's just, it's a really interesting read anyway. But when she says about this, you know, you had in back in the middle ages, you would have warlords and people running countries and they would have almost these sages, these wise men that they would run things through before they made a decision. And they were more likely the HSP people. And you see a lot in mythology and you see a lot in like fairy tales and things where you've got this person, well, you've got the Senate, things like this are in place so that you don't have a very extroverted, non-sensitive person running around making decisions. They've got someone to, to run it past and that's going to give it thought and give their opinion yeah we're the philosophers and you know it's it's a newer term highly sensitive person but we've also always been known as the creatives and the dreamers and the priests and the philosophers and the healers and that is why i think that we are so valuable is that we see things from a different perspective and we are needed to share that or or from the healing perspective if the group tends to go in a direction that causes a lot of pain or war or something we heal the wounded and we sweep us back up and then we are also known as the inspiration right we're we're the creatives we are the ones that are we don't necessarily consume as much as we create actually. So we are the movie makers, the book writers, Mm -hmm. we are the illustrators, we have this amazing inner world that we want to share and express. And I find one of the aspects of being highly sensitive that I love so strongly about myself, but I am constantly disappointed in my uh, inability to express is I have this amazing inner world. I have the great imagination and daydreams and belief systems and just perception of reality. 
And I feel like I can only share 10% of that. I, I just literally don't have the words. I've tried art. Sometimes art helps where I'll do expressive dance or I'll just feel somatically in my body, like some, some of those sensations, but words just don't do it justice. You will always feel misunderstood. And um, I find um, I had a client once say, the reason I get depressed isn't because of something bad that happened to me. It's because I have no way of expressing all of the good things that are happening in my inner world. And so when somebody asks me how I'm doing, I just say fine. And then I feel like they don't know me because they don't know all that is inside of me. And I resonated with that so much. And I said, I can't even express what you just expressed, which is that loneliness of being misunderstood because it is difficult to describe what it is to be a rich inner world as a sensitive person. And we do feel things very deeply. And I think society looks at that badly, as we've said before, like, oh, you're too sensitive, you're too emotional. But, the, you know, feeling things deeply is a great gift, but not being able to we share pay. that with other people is yeah. so frustrating. We pay trillions of dollars a year to have someone give us a feeling. We go to films, we go to amusement parks, we do drugs, we go out and have expensive dinners. We're, we're searching for those feelings that highly sensitive people have naturally, right? And we, we can get that same feeling outside smelling a rose that somebody's paying, you know, $1,000 at a fancy spa for because it's not as easy for the 80% to feel these sensations that come naturally for us. And so I find that that is one of my favorite parts about being highly sensitive is that I have this rich feeling, but like I said, I, I, I can't express it. I'll never be able to, but I'll never stop trying. <laughs> and I've I'll tried through stop. art and it just doesn't do it justice because the, the practicality of what like comes out on the paper, I just look at and go, yeah. no, that really, that really didn't. One day I made this painting and I was so proud of it. It was a synesthesia draw, um, painting. And so for those of you listening who don't know what synesthesia is, it is a quality that a lot of highly sensitive have where your senses, um, like those sensory wires kind of cross. So like per se, um, a number has a color or a shape has um, a feeling in your body. And for me, um, music has colors. And so I sat down and listened to a song and I watercolored what it sounded like on a piece of paper. And it was the most enjoyable experience for me. It just felt so good. And I went in the other room and I showed my husband. I was like, look at this, look what I just drew. And I was almost like emoting this like beautiful energy of like, I can't believe I just made this. Can you tell what song it is? And he's like, no, it just looks like a whole bunch of colors. It looks like, he's like, I love you, but it just looks like you just took like, every color in the in the watercolors it just smushed it on the paper you know because like in his mind he wanted it to look like like a thing you know like a tree or a, like a landscape but to me I just like painted what the song sounded like and that you know it was not received that way <laughs> I love the way he prefaced it with I love you but it's rubbish yeah he did yeah. he knows well he knows to do that so what we touched on earlier is how, you know, we have this gift and it's very stimulating, like taking in everything in the senses is wonderful, but also very, very tiring. And 
And your professional opinion, I would love to know. I don't want to call them coping mechanisms because that sounds like it's something wrong. But what tips would you give people that have just discovered their HSP and they're trying to make the most of it, but not burn themselves out? I guess what tips to reset, like we said, and manage would you give? I have a few, actually. So firstly, making sure that we mentioned, we touched on this earlier, making sure that you have enough indulgent, pleasurable activities to balance your nervous system and to rewire um, pathways in your brain and in your nervous system um, that elicit pleasure. Because the more we do that and the more we make time to make um, these pathways stronger and deeper, then those will give equal weight to your experience of the world. Otherwise, you're consistently giving your nervous system a feeling of threat. And so by really indulging in the pleasurable activities, Dr. Katie Larson is giving you permission to give yourself pleasurable activities in any sensory form uh, as that you can. I really encourage that, firstly. Secondly, one of the things that we didn't touch on as much is the empathic nature of being highly sensitive. So one of our qualities is we are very emotionally aware of our own emotions. We're quite emotionally literate and we can name them fairly well, but we're also very empathic in the sense that we're going to be picking up on other people's feelings. One thing that I find is a very good activity to do several times until you have a little, a little dictionary in a way is to create your energy signatures for your emotions. And so you can think of this almost as like a barcode for joy, a barcode for worry, a barcode for um, anxiety. So you're literally going to sit in a calm, relaxed state and you're going to summon or manifest the feeling of anxiety in your body. And you're going to notice where that lives. Like instantly, as I say the word anxiety, I can feel it in my neck. I feel the heat in my shoulders and in my face, a little bit of sweaty palms. And maybe you're visual, maybe you see red, but you're going to write that down somewhere. And that is your energy signature for anxiety. And then you do it for all of the main emotions, worry, joy, um, anticipation. And the reason you do this is because that's your brand. That's your flavor of emotion. And so when you're in a crowd or even one-on-one and you start to feel something, you can discern, is that my brand of anxiety or is that the collectives? Is that my loneliness or is that my friend? And I think since doing this for myself, I have been able to really strongly recognize, is this mine much quicker than before not recognizing what my energy signatures were? And so that sounds so simple. And like, how can we, how can we have missed this for all of our years? But uh, for me, even when I discovered this, I was like, this is going to be a lifesaver. And it really has been. And in a conjunction with that type of practice, I think would be learning your body's yes and no, and being very clear on when your body says yes, and your body says no, because it will never lie to you. And we're so lucky to have a walking lie detector. You know, like your body will always tell you how it really truly feels about something. And so just sitting in your um, body, and I usually tell my clients to do this first with their name and not their name. So you say, you know, I'm Katie, feel where it feels in your body. And then like, I am, you know, John, 
And then what does it feel like? And then do it again and just say, what is my yes? What is my no? It tends to be really similar to your name and not your name. And once you recognize your body's yes and no, anytime you're uncertain about anything from should I eat the leftovers in the fridge or, you know, should I um, go to that party with everybody? Something as banal and mundane as those everyday questions to should I quit my job? Should I move? Should I, you know, the big questions and your body will tell you, it will tell you what you, you want on a deep, deep soul based level. And it will tell you what you need. And, you know, when you were young out partying and you were like, I need to go, chances are you asked your body, like, do we need to go? And the body's like, yep, we're done. We're, we're good. Let's go. And you listened, right? But if we do it accidentally all of our life, you know, you're going to get a couple hits here and there because you're accidentally listening. But if you become conscious and really focus on asking your body and listening to the response, it's almost like putting money in the bank. And like each time you put a deposit of trust in your body, you just have so much money or trust to draw from so that when you have to do those big things, you know, should I move? And your body's like, yeah. You should. You don't second guess it because you've been depositing all of those um, mundane questions and trusting it all this time. And you really start to understand the signals then. It's almost like I talk a lot to my introvert clients about tapping into your inner guidance or intuition. And I don't necessarily mean it in a psychic way. It's just that you have all these feelings and these nudges. Yeah. And quite often in a highly extroverted world, it they get mislaid, they get like poo-pooed like that's not important or no you should yeah. be doing this and this is where people get illness where they carry on for years ignoring like this feeling inside that something's not quite right because society's telling them that it is right it's what they should be doing so I love that you brought right. into like leaving a job or moving because all of those things your body's going to give you the best answer of anything yeah and it whispers at first but then mm. it shouts when you don't listen right and it's like I reckon it is like a toddler it wants your attention. And if you give it attention, it will leave you alone. And if you don't, it will throw a tantrum until you pay attention and it will ruin your life. Um, for me, I get migraine headaches. And one of the reasons I will get them quite badly is when my body's like, hey, you need to go for a walk. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, after this computer thing I have to do or hey, no, really, we should go for a walk. We need to get some exercise. I'm like, yeah, yeah, after I lay down and watch this movie and do nothing. And it's like, okay, you didn't listen to me, so I'm going to give you a migraine. And it's like just recognizing the whispers before mm -hmm. they begin prevents the symptoms of our bodies acting out, wanting our attention. So something I ask all of my guests at the end is – a book recommendation for ambitious introverts looking to start or grow an online business. But I think we can go slightly off track today, being as it's all about HSP, and say, Dr. Katie, what book would you recommend for anyone listening today that has identified with any of the things that we've talked about, even in the slightest? So definitely would recommend Dr. Elaine's original book, a highly sensitive person. That's my first recommendation. And honestly, the introduction alone will make you feel so fully heard and seen as a highly sensitive. But the one I want to reference that I think is actually quite creative is called, I don't want to be an empath anymore. 
how to reclaim your power over emotional overload, maintain boundaries, and live your best life. And the author is Aura North. And the reason I really appreciate it is that it is not all love and light. It is very practical. A lot of the exercises that I mentioned a minute ago, especially the energy signature one, can be attributed to her. I like her um, candor. I like the way she makes fun of how she's had, um, you know, she's, she's very sensitive and empathic. And then she, she picks up on the, the qualities of people that they're lying to themselves. And, you know, that can be really difficult in our careers of when you're trying to help someone and they're lying to themselves and you have to first break that. Uh, actually, that's not how you feel. I, I feel that your energy is telling me something else. And so this book gives practical tips on how to not only um, trust yourself and heal wounds of past traumas, but also to communicate what it is that you are as an empath and a sensitive or highly sensitive person. And I think sometimes that is part of our journey as highly sensitives is making this quality, this cluster of traits well known enough that there isn't stigma and there isn't, you know, back to the first question you asked me in the podcast, there isn't a negative connotation. It's just, Oh, she's, she's one in five. She's one in five. She's a sensitive. And, um, so this book helped me with that. It's called once again, I don't want to be an empath anymore. How to reclaim your power or emotional overload, maintain boundaries and live your best life. And it's a cheeky title. She's not actually saying like, you don't want to be an empath. It's more of like a, when you get upset and you go, Oh, I don't want to be an empath, but there's really nothing we can do. We, we are all um, born this way. And it's now uh, allowing ourselves to, figure out the tools to live our best life. And then, Hey, sharing those tools, which is what you're doing on this podcast. And I thank you for giving me that opportunity as well. Well, thank you. I'm going to link to that book in the show notes, as well as all of your contact details, but just for anyone that's listening while they walk in or driving, where is the best place that they could find you online? You can find me at my website, which is growthquest.com or on Instagram at Dr. Katie, K-A-T-I-E growth quest. So at Dr. Katie growth quest. Dr. Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ambitious Introvert Podcast with me, Emma Louise Parks. If you enjoy this show, please, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes. As a thank you, one lucky reviewer each month will win a 60-minute one-on-one coaching session with me, where you'll get the clarity and confidence to attract your ideal clients. And if you know someone who could benefit from listening to the show, then please do share and help me reach as many fellow ambitious introverts as possible. 